This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'm pleased to note that in our second segment today, we will be resuming our conversation with former Congressman Pete McCloskey. The congressman gave us a great deal of time some weeks back, and we are delighted to be able to continue the discussion he had with us on many interesting topics. Stay tuned for that in segment two. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 26th of June. We have now passed the summer solstice and would note that from now until December 21st, the days are all going to get just a little bit shorter here in the Northern Hemisphere. For our listeners in Australia and New Zealand, of course, the days are just going to keep getting longer and longer. At any rate, back to this date in history, June 26th. It was on June 26th in 1483 that Richard III usurped the English throne from his 12-year-old nephew who disappeared after being confined to the Tower of London. Richard's tumultuous two-year rule ended when he was killed in, in battle with Henry, Earl of Richmond, who became Henry VII. Richard's crown was supposedly found dangling from a rosebush, symbolizing that the 40-year-old civil war called the War of the Roses had finally ended. As we talked about in this program a few weeks back, Richard III's skeleton, surprisingly, was unearthed over in the UK. We also have noted in talking about this king, that uh, the terrible reputation he has from the works of William Shakespeare are probably due in part to political propaganda. Shakespeare was writing for the descendants of Henry VII, the guy who got rid of Richard. So there was a no profit in making a rather even-handed presentation of Richard III in Shakespeare's plays. All right, on June 27th in 1541, Francisco Pizarro, the Spanish conquistador who explored and conquered Peru, and along the way murdering the Inca king Atahualpa, was himself killed by his followers after feuding. To which we add, good. Radio Parallax is definitely in favor of the death penalty when it came to Francisco Pizarro. And in my personal opinion, a few other people as well. Of course, we might want to note early on that the opinion that some people deserve the death penalty is one that does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But uh, we're pretty sure you knew that. And it was on June 26th in 1925 that the legendary actor Charlie Chaplin communicated masterfully without saying a word in The Gold Rush, which had its Los Angeles, California premiere on this date. Exactly 20 years later, June 26, 1945, the Charter of the United Nations was signed by representatives of 50 nations meeting in San Francisco. This international federation replaced the League of Nations, which had failed to attain the promise intended in its creation at the conclusion of World War I. And finally, on June 26, 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy electrified Europeans as he stood before the Berlin Wall and announced, Ich bin ein Berliner suggesting that all people must become engaged in ending the political division of the German people that had persisted since World War II. That uh, would in fact take a few more decades, but the Berlin Wall did come down in 1989 and the two parts of the country were finally reunified. 
Our quote of the day comes from financier Warren Buffett, who said, if markets were rational, I'd be waiting tables for a living. Now, if you could figure out how Warren seems to know what the irrational markets will do, well, I guess you could be as wealthy as he. Our quip of the day comes from Aristotle, who once said, if one listens to the wrong kind of music, he will become the wrong kind of person. So yes, apparently Aristotle was able to anticipate rap music by 2,500 years. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Seth Meyers, who noted a few weeks back, it was announced that golfer Phil Mickelson is under investigation by the FBI for insider trading of Clorox stock. By the way, insider trading of Clorox stock by a professional golfer is the whitest collar crime possible. Our stats of the day, first off coming from the newrepublic.com, is that on days when their team is playing in the World Cup, men are 3.26 times more likely than normal to have a heart attack, according to a German study of hospitalizations during the last World Cup. For women, too, the risk is apparently 1.8 times higher. Watching the games not only produces stress in rabid fans, according to the study, but it's also associated with lack of sleep, overeating, consumption of junk food, heavy alcohol ingestion, and smoking. Of course, I guess you could say that our good news for the week is something we would tack on in that particular statistic, which was that conversely, 49% of Americans think that soccer is boring. And yes, I think we can't resist segueing a bit into the current World Cup excitement going on in Brazil. We don't often quote foxnews.com, but the comments by Stephen Moore, we find uh, somewhat irresistible, said Mr. Moore, one billion people may be watching the ongoing World Cup, but I won't be one of them. The reasons are obvious. I'm an American. I want scoring. I want action. Soccer matches have little of either. And if a team goes up two to nothing, it's like being down 49 to nothing in real, that is American football. The only entertainment comes when players theatrically flop on the ground crying for a foul. And I have to admit, while working out in the gym the other day, I looked up and saw one of these World Cup matches going on. And yes, sure enough, somebody had, I think someone's toe touched one of the other players. At which point the player went to ground as if he'd been smacked with a sledgehammer. Anyway, we know a lot of you out there are, are enjoying this spectacle. Uh, and, and yes, Paul Dorn, we're, we're not going to try and rain on too many parades here. Ms. Merlin just notes with some relief that, thank God, in Brazil, no one has access to vuvuzelas. Which, frankly, four years ago made the entire event sound like an attack by killer bees. And we're going to have to say something this week about what's going on over in Iraq, so I think we'll just uh, address that now. Because, amazingly, the right-wing pundits are trying to pin this on Barack Obama. Noting more on Max Boot, writing in CommentaryMagazine.com, It is hard to imagine a bigger disaster for American foreign policy. Or a more self-inflicted one. Iraq is now crumbling as the black-clad jihadists of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria have seized control of the Sunni regions and are headed towards Shiite-held Baghdad. This Sunni-Shiite civil war which threatens to engulf the entire region is vivid proof of the folly of President Obama's decision to withdraw all U.S. troops from Iraq in 2011. Which prompted Steve Chapman, writing for the ChicagoTribune.com, to point out, you're blaming the wrong president. It was George W. Bush who in 2008 signed the pledge to withdraw all troops by the end of 2011, not Barack Obama. And Bush did so at the insistence of the Iraqi government. 
Nuri al-Maliki knew that most Iraqis were sick of U.S. soldiers in their streets and that telling us to get out would enhance his popularity. And if we're assigning blame for the ugliness we've unleashed, it was Bush and Dick Cheney who charged into Iraq in pursuit of Saddam Hussein's non-existent weapons of mass destruction with no understanding of Iraq's internal politics and sectarian divisions. Or the immediate difficulty of constructing a stable order in an alien land. Yes, we were reading an account of this uh, yesterday, a commentary I'm not going to quote at length on this week's program, but uh, it did point out that apparently this whole idea of Shiite versus Sunni uh, was something that George W. Bush, boy, didn't know a thing about. And that Colin Powell crack about how if you go into a country, it's, you know, like Pottery Barn. If you break it, you own it. Some rather accurate cartoonists have... uh, I've seized onto that to show a picture of George Bush holding up a bill at Barack Obama saying, I broke it, you bought it. This doesn't stop the Wall Street Journal, a Rupert Murdoch publication, from noting that if the war on terror is over, the ISIS didn't get the message. Yet as ever, Obama's doing nothing. What's needed is a show of force. A squadron of Apache attack helicopters, Predator drones, and A-10 attack planes would make the ISIS think twice about marching on Baghdad. Well, maybe not. The editors of the Baltimore Sun said there are no good options here. Airstrikes would help Iranian troops prop up al-Maliki's teetering Shiite government, giving Tehran yet more influence over Iraq. Any military action against ISIS would also directly benefit Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, who is fighting the group in his country. Do we really want to be aiding Assad and the Ayatollahs? Airstrikes are pointless if the Iraqi army is incapable of defending the country. What a mess. And who's to blame? Bush and Cheney. When we invaded in 2003, there was no offshoot group of Al-Qaeda with any kind of significant power in the country. Our invasion and destabilization has created the current situation. Uh, And no, we don't know the current whereabouts of neocon favorite Ahmed Chalabi. He might be back in Brooklyn running a falafel factory. We, we don't know. Another cartoon we want to cite is one showing a TV screen in a bar with the commentator saying, Insurgents have captured strategic positions and are waging a bloody push toward the capital in this spiraling civil war. One patron's going, Iraq? Another one's going, no, the Republican Party. And something that took me by surprise about this, uh, this defeat of Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader, which took place last week, was uh, some of the comments made by the man that defeated him. College professor Dave Brott was sort of portrayed as, uh, you know, a Tea Party favorite and, you know, right-wing nut. But Politico.com did note that his rhetoric sounds like it came straight from the People's Party of the late 19th century, with his denunciation of big banks, crony capitalists, and the gazillionaires sucking up too much of America's wealth. Brat said the Republican Party's been paying too much attention to Wall Street and not enough to Main Street. Doesn't sound like a nutty position to us. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. of the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for keeping up with the kids after the FBI released an 83-page manual that it uses to decipher Twitter slang, which includes the common shorthand like LOL, 
laugh out loud, as well as the more unusual acronyms such as TPK, Total Party Kill, and IITYWTMWYBMAD, which allegedly means, if I tell you what this means, will you buy me a drink? This whole thing may be a sign that the end of the world is near. Moving right along, it was a bad week last week for playing firemen after a Pennsylvania woman climbed 40 feet up a tree to rescue a stuck cat only to realize she couldn't make it back down. At this point, firefighters had to rescue both Tyra Dennis, 21, and the stranded kitty. Said a fire official, normally we recommend people just let animals come down by themselves. And, you know, we probably should have made that our our quote of the day, but anyway. It was an ugly week last week for toughing it out with the news that a 72-year-old California runner completed a grueling 7.5-mile race over steep terrain despite suffering a heart attack as he ran. Said Wolfgang Zeck as he was being rushed to the hospital, My body was not feeling too bad, except for the chest pain. And other than that, Mrs. Lincoln... All right, from the Only in America file, we have this. Apparently, the Texas Rangers, in this case, the baseball team, not the law enforcement agency, have cautioned fans against doing the wave in order to avoid hitting each other in the face. Yes, apparently, state of Texas medical officials have said, due to the amount of injuries sustained in this ballpark, persons should not attempt doing the wave at any time. And no, we don't know in this case whether the state of Texas medical officials included Mo Howard, Larry Fine, and Curly Howard. All right, and now from the inventions you may or may not need department, we have a couple items. Apparently, Cricket, a Texas company which specializes in vintage-style men's shirts, has, uh, well, it's asked the question, have you ever tried to open a twist-off beer cap only to be defeated by wet hands or simple weakness? So they're producing shirts that have an extra band of material inside the front left tail to prevent tearing when that corner is used to pop open a brew. Apparently the beer opening shirts are going to cost you 78 bucks. And how about this for high-tech mania? It's long been noted that runners are sometimes number-obsessed, but there's a new high-tech gizmo out that, uh, well, here's the deal. You put it in your shoe and it determines whether your shoe is worn out and needs to be replaced. It's called Mino, a wafer-thin device. You slip into one of your running shoes near the heel, and it will start an odometer to tell you how much life you have left in your shoes. Evidently, when you reach 400 miles, and the chip counts 600 compressions per each mile, your shoes self-destruct. No, actually, uh, it just it alerts you that you know your shoes are on their last legs. This is for those of you who are incapable of looking at the soles of the shoes for free to see if they're worn. Let's revisit a stat from a few weeks ago. We noted that about 2.1 billion people, 30% of the world's population, is now considered obese, according to a study by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The U.S. has 87 million obese people, which was felt to be more than any other country. Of course, this did, this did appear in the Wall Street Journal. But this is getting people to ask the question, uh, could it be that the main cause of America's obesity epidemic is that food has simply become too cheap and easy to get? That was the results of a study by the Rand Corporation. And the findings do challenge conventional wisdom about obesity in the U.S., which shifts the focus from our sedentary lifestyles to the economics of eating. 
said Roland Sturm, a senior economist at RAND. It's not just that we may be eating more high-calorie food, but we're eating more of all types of food. Researchers determined that Americans are spending a smaller share of their income on food than they did decades ago. In the 1930s, for example, 25% of Americans' disposable income went to food. Today, it's 10%, making food cheaper for this society than any other society in human history. All right, let's talk about food, something we don't do very often, but let's, let's I think, finish this segment with a, with a chat about things that we eat. Sacramento Bee had a piece about ethnic foods a couple weeks ago, referring to the Cuban sandwich, which was noted to be a staple sold everywhere in South Florida, especially in restaurants and kiosks in what's known as the Little Havana section in Miami. There, they're as common as burgers and pizza are here. What's talking about this story is in the several times I've been to Cuba, I was pretty hard-pressed to get my hands on a Cuban sandwich. I was pretty hard-pressed to get my hands on any sandwich. But uh, they look good in the article, and they are available locally, so I guess I'm going to have to try one here and then maybe write my friends in Cuba and let them know how it is. And by the way, I do know that things must be changing in uh, the relationship of America and Cuba in that, uh, that I'm now able to get emails from people on the island, which is, which is, which is kind of cool that they're finally getting in the 21st century. Another piece reprinted in the B in the food and wine section last week. It was a reprint by Jim Shahin's piece in the Washington Post, talked about why we love smoke in our food. A pretty good piece that explored what it is about the flavor of smoke, which used to be pretty much universal. We used to cook with wood or something that burned, and smoke had a way of getting into everything that we consumed. And as noted on this program previously, your tongue has taste receptors for salt, sour, sweet, and bitter. We were all taught that back in school, but umami is thought to be the fifth taste. Well, it is the fifth taste. It's, it's basically glutamate, MSG. It gives a, a savoriness, a flavor that our tongue has had receptors for that somebody just never got around to noticing until recently. But in this article, they made the case that perhaps smoke might be the sixth taste that's out there. But uh, in fact, that's not really very scientific. Turns out that most of the flavor of smoke comes in smell. The piece did refer to the 2009 book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, in which Harvard biological anthropologist Richard Rangham theorizes that cooked food helped us evolve because it took less time to digest, leaving us more time to do other things, like invent the wheel and, unfortunately, soccer. But Rangham has written that we are not like other animals. In most circumstances, we need cooked food. The article speculates that the elemental scent of meats being cooked over fire dating back roughly 1.8 million years remains part of our culinary DNA. Something we may want to run by some food scientists here at UC Davis. It's a, it's a pretty interesting thought. We might also want to ask him about a piece uh, by Christopher Snow off the internet titled, Seriously, Stop Refrigerating These Foods. Peace noted that if you're like a lot of people on the internet, you're probably tired of folks, governments, disembodied voices telling you what to do. And to be fair, a lot of things you shouldn't be putting in your icebox are pretty self-evident. You shouldn't refrigerate pants, for example. <laughs> probably shouldn't refrigerate other refrigerators. I mean, that would just be wasteful. But he goes on to say, oh, let's just save some time and restrict ourselves to the foods many people think they should be refrigerating but really don't need to. Among them, potatoes. Refrigeration causes the starch in potatoes to turn to sugar, and while this might sound like a good thing, it gives them the wrong flavor. 
The skins will darken prematurely while cooking, making them look less appetizing. Onions, you don't have to refrigerate, but you do need to keep them physically separated from your potatoes. Spuds emit moisture and gases that will make onions rot. Your best bet is to keep onions in the mesh bag they came in because they like air circulation. Same thing for garlic. Air circulation's a key. Garlic bulbs will keep for two months without refrigeration, and if you keep them out of the damp air of the fridge, you'll avoid making all of your other nearby produce smell like garlic. This does take me back uh, to my youth many, many moons ago when, well, a lot of the homes in where I grew up still had cellars, and they still had basements, and because it was cool down there, people used to put onions, potatoes, garlics, etc. down there, which evidently remains to this day a good idea. So let's, let's start putting more basements in houses, shall we? All right, what about avocados? It's noted that avocados won't ripen in cold conditions. So unless you need to keep them for a while, you should let them live outside your refrigerator until they're ready to eat. Tomatoes, cold breaks down the cell walls in tomato flesh and causes them to become mushy and mealy. For better results, store them at room temperature and keep them out of direct sunlight, which can make them ripen early. Bananas, I think most of you know this one. There used to be a, a commercial. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say bananas have to ripen in a certain way. Well, that, that goes back to the 1940s. It's true. You should allow bananas to ripen at room temperature and use your refrigerator when you want to slow the ripening. Of course, when you put them in the fridge, it does turn the banana peels brown, but the, the interior does still remain unspoiled. Fresh melon, uncut is best stored on the kitchen countertop where it can properly ripen and sweeten. After you cut up your cantaloupe or whatever, then you should put it in the refrigerator, but don't freeze it. What about stone fruits, meaning peaches, apricots, nectarines, plums, cherries? They should be ripened at room temperature. Stem end down, they say. After the fruits start softening slightly to the touch and begin to smell sweet, you can move them to the refrigerator where the shelf life is about three to five days that point. Here's one I battled with roommates over. Bread. Try to eat your bread before it gets to the point where you need to chill it in order to stave off mold because if you end up refrigerating bread, the loaf gets tough and less tasty. For this reason, some people freeze bread. Freezing preserves the texture, but then you have to deal with defrosting it. Who's got the time to microwave bread when they're rushing around? Not me. Same holds true for pastries. You can store them covered outside the fridge, and maybe they won't last quite as long, but refrigeration will cause them to go stale faster. What about spices? Well, the human environment of a refrigerator is detrimental to the flavor of spices, and since most can be safely stored for years without refrigeration, there's no benefit to cold storage. The writer of the article, Christopher Snow, <laughs> wrote, as regards to honey, ugh, my family refrigerates honey, and I'll never understand why. Honey is one of the world's earliest preservatives. It has a practically infinite shelf life. We've heard of tales of archaeologists uncovering ancient Egyptian tombs with edible honey inside. Which I'd have to add, it was a brave man that ate that honey. But no, you shouldn't refrigerate honey. It crystallizes, and you'll have to squeeze that stupid teddy bear even harder to get it out. And finally, peanut butter. Apparently, all natural peanut butter should be refrigerated because that peanut oil can rise and separate from the mash and go rancid. But commercially processed peanut butter, like Jif and Skippy, can be stored for months without an issue, even if the jar's been opened. Oh, one final item, oils. Nut oils, hazelnut oil, peanut oil, etc., must be refrigerated. But for other types, 
Well, don't do it. The oils just become cloudy and they harden when refrigerated. And while this doesn't do lasting damage, you need to wait for the oil to warm before it tastes right or flows properly again. So just don't do it. All right, and someone who's always pretty cool without refrigeration is our old pal Will Durst. here with a few choice words about the World Cup, the most exciting sporting event on the face of the planet, as we've been told over and over again. Bigger than the Super Bowl and World Series put together. And go ahead, throw in the next Star Wars movie while you're at it. And we Americans should be congratulated for finally growing up and stopping with the mocking. Really? So what's the second most exciting sporting event on the planet? The Desert Tricycle Marathon Relay Seniors Division? We're more sophisticated now. Look at the huge leaps Major League Soccer has made in the last couple of years, easily propelling itself to the 8th or ninth most popular team sport in the country, right behind football, basketball, baseball, hockey, bowling, beach volleyball, water polo, and lacrosse, and maybe badminton, and in some regions, cow tipping and pie eating. But soccer, or football, really can be what Pele said, o jogo bonita. The beautiful game. We residents of the Estados Unidos just need to learn how to watch the damn thing. Number one, who to root for. Choose a team. Every match. Pick the land of your ancestors or the land next to the land of your ancestors or simply the underdog, which could be us. Number two, who to root against. Start with teams whose victory would impede your team's progress or, or just root against overbearing bullying countries which, again, could be us. Isn't that right, Vladimir? Or go traditional and root against the Axis powers. Number three, you need a big-ass TV. The bigger, the better. 70 inches is a good start, because soccer is fond of cameras that are fastened to the inside edge of the International Space Station. Number four, the World Cup is meant to be watched with people, preferably a bar frequented by countrymen of the team that you're rooting for, do some research. Stay away from wearing the opposing team's colors. And finally, if you do watch it at home, turn on Univision, not ESPN. The announcers are much more entertaining. You know the guy who goes, GOAL, when someone scores? He does stuff like that all the time. A penalty when someone almost scores. Even when players trip and fall, clutching their face, which is not flopping. It's an injury simulation. For a radio parallax, I'm Will Durst. You know, we just hate to see Will run down a fine sport like soccer. We have never taken the position of radio parallax that soccer is inferior to cow tipping. All right, let's continue our talk with. Congressman Pete McCloskey after a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 